0: This morning, we are going to be in Acts chapter 18, and uh, we're going to be in verse 18, and I'm going to get through, I believe, verse 23 this morning. And so uh, just the the thought I want to put in your mind, just introduction-wise, is this. If you were to ask, you know, what is life made up of in, in terms of, you know, I'm going to be very general here for just a second, okay? Life is essentially what action you're doing, right? What activity you do, who you're doing it with at any given moment. Where you are when you're doing that thing, and um, what your plan is, this is the real intangible one. what is your plan moving forward? and so that's like a, a weird one that's kind of hard to quantify, but largely whatever it is that you are planning moving forward is going to affect the right now, and the right now is sort of like a, a threefold thing, right? What are you doing? Who are you doing it with, and, and where are you doing it at? And so if I was to kind of just say that, that is what it means to, to live and you are constantly investing in something, like you're, you're investing the only real commodity that you have, which is time. You, you might think that you spend money on things, but really when you're spending money, you're just spending the time that you invested to get that money. Are you tracking with that? So what if for a moment I said, what if the, the thing that you saw on something was not the price tag in dollars and cents, but in that real commodity, which is time? or in, in something like a relationship value or, or something like that. So maybe that's too hard for you to get your mind around, but I think we, we look at things so transactionally, instead of, you know, you, you walk in and you want that new pair of shoes or something, and instead of it being, you know, $100 or something, it says, you know, four hours of work, right? Or four hours of meetings at work or something like that. And that puts a real value on it for you. Does it not? Okay, so, so something like that. Or what if, what if you could know If you were going to pursue something, what it would cost you right now? Like, I have to forego this thing right now so that I can acquire this thing later. Like, we'd have to sacrifice something. You would say that is spending some time later on for the the, the potential benefit down the road. Now, if we ask this, how much does it cost? We will always... Um, do this sort of valuation in our head and say, is what it says that it costs or the potential, potential cost that's underneath that, the time value or, or what I've actually invested to acquire this thing, whether that's relational capital or, or uh, family capital or, 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 or money itself, right? Is that worth what I can get or it, should I just keep it or should I spend it on myself? And so this is largely why I think we um, are a very like selfish people. We say, I've worked hard for this, or I don't really feel like investing in this, and that's usually our excuse for why we are the way that we are, which is largely self-centered, self-focused. And if that, you know, doesn't make you excited about what we're going this morning, I apologize, but uh, I think that using this excuse that um, I, I am in a place of lack is why we don't serve why we don't give, why we don't live lives of sacrifice. And what we see uh, modeled in Scripture, what we're called to, is a very explicit level of service to God. And then there's kind of a, a level above that, which is just essentially, hey, beyond that, like what else can you lay down for the benefit of other people? And we kind of reverse all that around, and we ask, what can other people lay down for my benefit? Or how can I acquire enough so that I'll be satisfied? Because once I get to the level that I hope to get to, once I meet my particular standard of living, then I'll be willing to give out of my extra, out of my abundance. And so generally, here's how you're going through life. I'm lacking. I'm lacking. And as soon as I get to the level I want to, then I will be in a place where I can give or where I can serve or where I will be sacrificial. But that's not, that's not what we're called to do. You're called to live a life of sacrifice. And so uh, I, I'm just going to walk us through that this morning and um, how we see that in this text. And so if you would, just pray with me, and then uh, we'll get to the word this morning. Father, I pray for um, just this time that we do get to spend in focusing our minds and, um, more importantly, our hearts before you in your truth. So I just ask that you would use this specific and focused time of humility to shape us, to call us to be more and more um, reflective of your glory and to be more and more reflective of a church that puts you at the center and we decrease and you increase. So Father, would you speak your words and not mine this morning and keep me from error and give us what we need to receive um, what can be challenging words and that is um, a heart that seeks you and puts you at first, but a heart of flesh that can receive spiritual truths that you would speak. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. All right. So um, here we go. This is uh, Acts 18, starting in verse 18, says this. Now, after this, Paul stayed. After after this is, um, I'll just catch you up. I said I would, so here you go. After this is everything that Paul has been doing in in uh, Corinth. And Corinth is uh, where we get the very exciting Two letters to the Corinthians. It is a wild place, and the church uh, mimicked some of the culture that was there, okay? So, so Paul's been like staying in this very depraved place, and he found some favor in Corinth as he was there with um, really, if you want to look at it this way, the government of the city, they were trying to get Paul kicked out. And it says the last the last we see of Paul, they've drug him before the proconsul of uh, the region. And the guy says, hey, I don't, I don't really care what Paul's having to say. And so he gets to stay there for quite a while. And so it says after this. So it's after Paul's stay there. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, which is also not part of Paul's pattern. Usually he goes in place, he makes everybody mad, and then he either gets beat or kicked out or put in prison or something like that, right? So he stays many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, Priscilla and Aquila is this couple that he's met there, and they happen to be, um, they were like cast out of their home uh, town. and he meets them, and they're of the same craft, the same trade. They're both uh, tent makers or like leather workers, and, uh, and at Centria, he had his hair, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay, for, stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set um, off from Ephesus. When he had ha- And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church, and they went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So um, that sounds just a whole lot of travel itinerary, places that aren't familiar, and a, a weird haircut in the middle of that if you caught that. So um, where 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 is this going this morning, and um, how should we think about this? So Paul is not at a level of Christianity that you are not called to. I just want to say that at the outset. You are thinking, Paul is able to do all this stuff, but he's really at like a separate level. He got some access to something that you and I don't have, and that's just not true. It's not true. Paul is not like pro level in your JV, C-team, or something like that. He's, He's just a guy that looks at the world the way that he 's supposed to look at the world and he lives that and he, he does it with integrity and that 's hard for us to reconcile sometimes so Paul is not extra good and so we shouldn 't say well how can we be expected to fulfill things the same way that Paul is like am I called to go and travel all these places and, and do things and um, maybe or maybe not but either way the the reflection of your life should have the same mentality it should have the same heart in it and so we we need to look at a couple of things here to understand why Paul is the way that he is, and maybe why the way why you're not the way that he is, or maybe you should be. And I'm hoping to get you there this morning. Okay, so Paul is just simply exemplifying what living for God looks like. Now I count I think something like seven things that Paul has received some kind of like blessing or provision in this little stay in these two little, these two cities, and yet. What we see is Paul doesn't say, you know, this is something I I received from God as a blessing, and it's just so good that I have something now, and I'll I'll just kind of scoop that up and and huddle it close. It's just Paul, open-handedly saying, hey, if I need to go somewhere, I'll go somewhere. If I need to leave somebody, I'll leave somebody. If I have to leave something, I will do that. And then he says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. Okay. So that's largely Paul's view about things. So the first thing that um, I see is he says after this, well. The first thing that he had to leave was um, finally some kind of like, acceptance from, from government. Like he, he had actually won some favor there, um, and he wasn't being run out of town or being imprisoned or, or something like that. And then he also had gotten some consistency in his life. He stayed for many days longer uh, after um, you know, he had come and he had invested so much in the city uh, in, in trying to convert the Jews. And eventually, you know, they reviled him. He says, so I, I shake the dust off and I'm, I'm only going to go to the Gentiles. And so he found favor there too. But he had also converted the synagogue leader and the synagogue manager. And so he got to stay uh, a lot longer. He gets some consistency in his life. And we're told there's something like a year and a half that he's gotten to stay uh, in this place. And so that's, that's awesome for him. But he's willing to leave that as well. So he's leaving favor. He's leaving a consistent place. And he took leave of the brothers. He's got a church here. There's people that he connects with, people that care for him. He cares for them. They help support his ministry in uh, the city. But he's going to leave them. And he sets sail for Syria. And with him, he's got Priscilla and Aquila. Later, he says, Priscilla and Aquila are are dear to him. They risk their lives, he says, um, to help him. And so he's willing not only to leave the brothers, to leave consistency, to leave um, having a, a place where he's got some favor, He's willing to leave his, his, some of his partnership in ministry at uh, another place. And we'll get to this vow where he had cut his hair. It says, then he, he came to Ephesus. Now, this is an interesting one because I know for sure that you've forgotten this. But as Paul is trying to get going on the second missionary journey as they parted ways, and he's got kind of a new partnership going. If you remember, they're trying to go uh, north. They're trying to get into this region here. This is exactly where Paul wanted to go, was into Asia. He wanted to get to Ephesus. And so, uh, remember, it says the Holy Spirit forbid him to preach the, the gospel in Asia. And he's trying to turn, he's trying to turn, and finally he has the Macedonian call. He has this vision, and he says, we need to go over to Europe. So that's what led him to this moment. And so now he actually gets to go to the place that he wanted to go to all along, and yet he says, at the end, after they invite him, he's willing to leave the place that he wanted to go. Are you tracking with that? So there's just another thing that he's willing to leave behind. He says, and, and he left them there. This them is Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there. There's another provision, but he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. Okay, so now he's um, the people that he's burdened for, the people that he most cares. Hear the gospel are, are the Jews, and so he gets to share with them. And for once, in all of his sharing, he guess what happens? He he goes in, he shares, and it says. Um, they asked him to stay for longer. This never happens, okay? He gets some kinsman favorship, uh, and, and so he's got uh, stability there. He, he gets affirmation for the message, message among the Jews, and he's offered even another place to stay. Oh, I forgot. Um, he was living with, uh, he, he got a place like next door to the synagogue um, in, in Corinth, and so he was, he'd, has, he'd also had a home, right? So he leaves a home, he leaves a place. He leaves all, all the provision, all the favor, and he goes to a new place. He gets to the place he wanted to be, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. He goes and he shares with his own countrymen, his people, and they accept him. They like the message. They ask him to stay for longer, but he declines. And he says, but on taking leave of them, he said, hey, if the Lord wills, I, I will return to you. And so this is how we ought to approach our life. So what is it that Paul is doing that maybe you and I um, don't do sometimes? Well, Paul is looking at provision as something that is not meant for him. It's for how, how can I use this for God, it is, this is just his his general mindset for what he's going through in life, and so everything about our our um, approach to serving and fulfilling uh, a giving kind of life, a sacrificial kind of life, has to do with our perspective about provision. And um, you guys will be familiar with this, but um, in uh, in Exodus, as as God uh, gives the law and He says, uh, "We're going to make a covenant." He, he tells um, the Israelites, hey, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And now you are a, a royal priesthood, a kingdom, a priest, a royal nation, and uh, a treasured possession. And, and Peter, um, Peter repeats this same promise to the, to the, the Christians, the, the people that are in exile among the world. And he says, but now you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's addressing the church here. You are, and now I'm addressing you, Luma. Okay? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why has he done this? Or what does it mean that that has happened? Why? So that you can proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to focus in on the title that you've been given. You've been called a priest. And there's two functions to that. Like he's summoned you, like he's, he's, he's um, invited you as a, a priest, and then he's also given you that title. He's given you that role. You are a priest. Now you say, as a new priest, For God, what what should what should my life look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, The life of a priest is one of service, right? You render service. That is what you're called to do. And so, if you are being called a priest, then you ought to, if you want to say it this way, live up to that title. Are you Are you tracking with that? So, if you're a priest, you ought to reflect something of the nature of a priest. And so, your perspective on who you are. Is not just the same person you've always been that gets to add God to your life and live the same way that you always have with the same selfish perspective where I don't serve anybody but me, but God has helped me so that I don't have to go to hell. That's, that's the wrong perspective. You are a priest. You're chosen. Why? So that you can show everyone how excellent God is. And you're going to do that in a lot of different ways. But Paul's perspective on this, we find out in Philippians, one that you'll be familiar with, in Philippians 4, starting in verse 11, says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He has said, hey, you guys have sent me a gift, and I'm so happy that you've revived your concern for me. But he goes, I'm not speaking that I needed it to go on. Hear that. I wasn't speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low, I know how to be abound, and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. And then he talks about his professional athletic career here, which is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a joke. Okay? That's not what he's... Obviously, I can do all things through him who strengthens me is talking about what it means to be in lack and to be in need but still be content. How does, how does Paul have this kind of perspective? How does he say, I know what it is to be content. Even though I'm in need, I'm not telling you that I, I was lacking something. He has this perspective because earlier in chapter 3, he says this, but whatever gain I had, so he runs down this litany of things that you and I would say are good. I had position, I had authority, I had respect, I had a name, I had learning, I, I had everything at my disposal, but now... Going on in verse 7, but whatever whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss. There's the reconciliation. This is why Paul's perspective is what it is, and maybe why your perspective is not what his is. Because whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And our problem is that we count gain still gain. Whatever I counted gain, I still think that's gain. And that's why I'm still pursuing that. And that's why I have such a hard time giving that up. Because once I have enough of that, then maybe I'd be willing to give that up. Paul said, no, first you have to reconcile that as worthless. Once you see that those things don't gain you anything, once you've actually counted those things as loss, then you have the right perspective. He says, I indeed, I counted everything as, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, as rubbish. That's the very cleaned up word that he uses there. He says it's dumb. it's It's excrement. That's what it is. The stuff that we pursue constantly, the, the things that we inundate, inundate ourselves with that we are so unwilling to relinquish for God's good or for his service are the things that Paul says on the front end, you have to say as part of being a priest is saying, I count all of those things as loss. And if I have them, great. I know how to abound because my, my contentedness doesn't come from whether or not I have it. If I don't have it, I'm okay. And if I do have it, thank you, Lord. How can I use this for you? because that's what a priest does. So there's a lot of ways that this should come out in our lives. When God redeems you, he redeems your life, which means he redeems your living, what you do, who you are, okay? So here's some areas where you need to ask, is this true? In what, like your actual vocation, like your job. You, You may have been doing something that is irreconcilable with Christian values, okay? Like I I mean, I could be explicit, but I I feel like I don't need to. If if you're doing something that does not accord with Christian values, when when you're saved and you're called out of that, you have to remove yourself from that situation. So like vocationally at a basic level, if your living, your doing, your acquiring is at odds with God, then you should change vocations. And we see this when Jesus invites the disciples to follow him. They're doing something, they're engaged with something that's not necessarily uh, immoral, but when it is immoral, he calls them out of that and says, you know, hey, come follow me, we're gonna do something else. You're gonna do something different. So vocationally, you should ask this. Socially, if you have something like this that is irreconcilable with Christian values, then you also need to give that up, lay that down recreationally, relationally, financially, or reputationally. Okay? So there's just a, a myriad of ways where you should look at areas in your life and say, am I laying this down or is there some, some area of what I think I need to be okay? I'm not content unless I have this. And, and in doing that, you're supposed to see that it, this is just the basic level. This isn't like, well, to get to the, the better level, this is what the basic level that you've been called to as a priest. Okay? So, so, so don't miss that. So, so the basic level of Of dedication of your life is, Romans says, to be a living sacrifice. You know what I thought about this week? The the idea that a living sacrifice is is never spent, right? It just, it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. So all of your living is sacrifice. And this is what you've been called to do. This is your reasonable service. That's what Paul says in Romans, to be a living sacrifice. So that is the, 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 the foundational level. Now, um, there's something else to this perspective. Like, Paul understands this as a, as, a, as a guy who was learned in the scriptures, familiar with the Old Testament, what do the priestly duties entail? What do I do as somebody who renders my service to God to worship him, to exemplify his goodness to others? Right, he gets that. But there's like a, an additional level here that we miss um, that actually comes from understanding this, um, this vow that he takes. So um, this week and probably the next two weeks, something like that, um, we get uh, an, an, a unique instance of overlapping covenants, okay? What that means is like as the Mosaic law is expiring, the gospel's going forward, and there's a new covenant that's spreading, there's some things that happen where it's like it will only happen here, and it only happens at this moment, but it, it kind of gives us some, some weird dynamics, and this is one of them, because Paul's the first guy to say, I don't need a vow to, to, to please God, I don't need any additional temple sacrifices. I don't have to do anything because um, I'm accepted in Christ. So he sees that as, as his means of acceptance. He understands the new covenant. So why, does, why is he taking a vow is the question. So this vow that um, we, we see him say, it says at Centria, he, he, he had a haircut because he, he was under a vow. That's what it says in Acts. And, and so uh, the, the, the thing that this lines up with comes out of number six, and it's called the vow of the, the Nazarite. Um, not to be confused with the Nazarene, which is a place. The the Nazarite uh, is is a specific vow. And so all of Numbers chapter 6, if you're into reading some Old Testament stuff, the whole chapter is about this vow. And I'm going to sum it up for you so that you can um, see what Paul is doing in this perspective and see how he relates this to his giving and his serving. Okay. So in number six, it says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them when either a man or a woman, now this, this is, that's interesting because the priests were only men. So if you weren't, if you weren't born to the tribe of Levi, you weren't part of the priestly family, you couldn't serve in the temple. But this is saying, if you want to serve God in a certain way, you could take this vow. And, and interestingly, it includes women. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them: When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. And then it goes on to say what this Nazarite vow is. So, what you need to know here, real quick, is this word for um, Nazar in Hebrew just means to. Um, it means to separate. That's a. Oh no. I have to do all of that again because I spelled separate wrong. <laughs> it's an A-R. Okay. Nazar means to separate. Okay. And um, so essentially it's setting apart yourself for service to God. It's saying, I- I'm going to do something unique. I'm going to do something different. And it means you're going to consecrate yourself to the Lord. And so there's um, kind of three elements to the vow, and the first has to do with the fruit of the vine. Anything that comes from the vine, you can't have. And, and also, specifically, you would give it for a certain amount of time, okay? So, so you would take the vow, and like the minimum amount of time is something like 30 days. And so for 30 days, you can't have anything that comes from the vine. And when I say anything, it's a, it's a total prohibition. It's not just wine. It's, you can't have grapes. You can't have the seeds of grapes. You can't have the skin of grapes okay? It's a total prohibition of anything that comes from the fruit of the vine. So the first thing has to do with um, fruit of the vine, okay? So why, why would this be important? Like, well, and why, why such a total prohibition? Well, the fruit of the vine represents everything that has to do with pleasure or fulfillment or blessing. And so for a period of time, what you're doing is you're, you're abstaining from taking part in something that you had no part in producing to, to appreciate what, what God does for free, So so something like when you fast and you don't get to eat, you know, and then you start appreciating food more, but you're supposed to put your mind on God and you appreciate, like it's supposed to focus you in on that thing. It's the same thing that's happening here. So pleasure, fulfillment, provision, happiness, blessing, all of these are wrapped up in what God does and giving the fruit of the vine to people. But Jesus also says, importantly, uh, he he makes a an important analogy or, or metaphor about what he is. He is the provider of all things. And he says, so like apart from me, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you're separated from me, you can't produce anything. You're, 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 you're unable to make any fruit. So apart from me, you can do nothing because Jesus is the true vine. And so the idea of not taking part in that would help you recognize in a total prohibition kind of way that, that I don't actually... Um, all of my striving, all my struggling—I'm not actually acquiring anything that I produced myself. Like, does that make sense? Like, if you get a, a product that is a derivative of the vine, you couldn't have it. So you would you would appreciate how totally God's provision is, and how little of your own provision there is. Does that make sense? This helps you appreciate all all that God has done, and how little you do. Okay. So for a time, you abstain for um, from the vine. Now. Um, the principle of, of laying this aside has to do with not because, not because you want it to um, obligate God to something, but because you want to lay down something that you value or that something that you need or something that you would generally desire so that you can say that I, I desire whatever God has more than that thing. That's why we fast or that's why we, we would do anything to, to honor God in the way of a vow or something like that. If the principle is to sacrifice that, what we desire to say that we desire God more, and there, this is this is no different than that. Um, in in um, in Second Samuel, um, David is uh, there's there's been a plague, and the God has assuaged this um, great. Um, Judgment on the people, and um, David wants to offer a sacrifice at this particular vineyard and into um, <laughs> in this particular place. And the the man who owns the vineyard offers to give David not just the vineyard but also the the uh, sacrifice itself. But it says David would not offer to God that which cost him nothing. In Second Samuel it says, um, but the king said to uh, Aruna, "No, I will I will buy from you." This field for a price. I will not um, offer burnt offerings for the Lord, my God, that which costs me nothing. And that should be our mentality. Even though you're not the actual provider of something, if you give up that which you desire, it has cost you something. And God desires that you give him your desires. So it's not that you enrich him by giving those things up or that you obligate him because you said, well, I gave this up and now you owe me. It is to, to lay down something you desire to say, I desire God more. The second aspect of this is um, hair, okay? So um, all the time of not, uh, not having the fruit of the vine, you also were to let your hair grow, okay? So this is interesting too because uh, this comes back in and this is what ends the vow. So you'd let your hair grow and you'd let it, the locks be full or whatever. For, for a man, that was um, not normal. So whenever you see pictures of Jesus with like long hair, probably, probably not, Uh, He probably kept his hair short. That would have been what was appropriate at the time. So anyway, he's uh, so you let your hair grow, and this represents two things. One is like the authority of God, but it was also then conspicuous. You're doing something that might cause um, some kind of like tension on you socially, not just between people that respect you, but from people who disrespect you. And so uh, the the desire, uh, our innate desire to want to fit in with other people and to not be uh, sticking out in any way, this is kind of speaking to that. And it also speaks to God being our authority. It's like uh, there's something covering your head. So this this hair, you were to let it grow for uh, a certain amount of time. And so um, the last thing was um, death, which sounds like, hey, I try to avoid that all the time. So... I've got one third of this down. So you were supposed to uh, uh, avoid any contact with death or dead people or dead things. And it, it was, uh, you could read number six. It says, even if somebody should brush up against you or if the person you're sitting next to dies abruptly, you have to reset the vow. You got to redo it. The whole thing starts over. So why, why so strict? Like why, why so locked down on the death thing? Well, because death is the, the provided wage for sin. And God is a holy God. This is to remind you of how inundated the life that you live is with sin. So you had to avoid death at all costs. Not even if you're, It says even if your parents die, you don't go to the funeral. You couldn't do it. If you took this vow, it was a vow to the Lord. And so you just avoid death um, for the entire time. And so um, the, the end of this vow says you take um, your your sacrifices, there's four sacrifices at the end of the vow, and you bring them to the tent of meeting, and um, you offer them to the priest along with the hair. You cut your hair off at the end of this vow. So having completed the vow, this is where we find Paul, okay? So that was all to get to why did Paul have his hair cut at Centria? It says because he was under a vow. So all the stuff that he's giving up, a place, a people, acceptance, do you see how he's applied this to his life? And he's completed that vow. We don't know when or how. There's no kind of details there. But he's completed the vow, and so he gets his hair cut. And he's eventually on his way to Jerusalem, which is where we find him. He goes to Jerusalem. He says he goes up. He greets the brothers there. And then he, he um, goes um, and, and really he starts the second missionary journey right after that and winds back up in Ephesus. But his whole purpose is to lay down all that he has for God's um honor to honor God with what he has now there's an important part of this last um, this last offering of the hair because there's a, a secondary meaning to this word um, to this word nazar they come from the same root and in, in Hebrew there's no um, vowels. It's just N-Z-R, okay? And so you have to kind of work out what, what is the meaning of the word by its context. But the netzer is a crown. It means like something that you'd wear. And the, the, the priest in the service of God in the temple always wore a crown. And upon that crown, there was a golden plate, and it said, holy to the Lord. And they would wear this whenever they went into um to serve in the temple. It was part of the, the, the priestly garments. I want you to think of what, why, why has God given this vow in number six? So that anybody who wants to can serve God with holiness in their life, and he crowns them with this, this honor. The most honoring thing you can do to God or for God is to sacrifice for him and live in a way that accords with um, his provision for you, Right? His abstaining from the fruit of the vine, uh, from from not needing to um, strive and struggle for the acceptance of other people and for, the, um, for uh, keeping yourself holy or away from death, away from sin and consequences and living holy to God. And so the end of this is that you offer to God this, it's cut off at that point. You're offering that and that's burned with this peace offering and as part of the end of the vow. And so this is what we offer before God. All that he's given to us, our holy living, our striving is doing, is just to honor him in service. And so this is all to paint the picture for you. That sacrifice, yes, it steps up a level, but it's still part of the priestly service. It's, what, it's a crown that you get to wear. By wearing the crown, it doesn't make you holy, but it designates you as somebody who's trying to serve the Lord. And by wearing those things in obedience to God, you are serving him in a holy way. And this is, this is not so far removed to you that know, like, well, we're not under that anymore. Yeah, but there are things in your life that accord exactly with these, and you could give those up and, and live as a priest for God in a way that would, would honor and, and um, uh, exemplify his goodness to other people. So here's the end of it. At, uh, in verse 18, it says, the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall take the hair from his consecrated head and uh, put it on the fire that is under that, that consecrated is that that, that crown. You will take that, that the crown and give it to God or to offer it back to him as a consuming um, sacrifice. So we see that Paul has this perspective about um, how, how God's provision comes to him and what he's going to do with it, that he wants to serve as a priest, but also he wants to offer something um, that, that costs him something, like his desires. That everybody wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to have a place to live. Everybody wants a job. Everybody wants friends. All of these things he lays down and he specifically has this phrase like in Ephesus they invite him to stay longer he says look if the lord wills i will come back because if the lord wills he will come back if if god wants it it's going to happen this is exactly what we're told to do in james chapter 4 it says come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town such and such year and we'll trade and we'll make profit and, and um, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring he says you make all these plans you you have the future right you have who you're, who you're with, you have what you're doing, you have where you're doing it at, and then you have this intangible future that you're looking forward to. How will I spend my time? What will I do with my provisions? Well, this person says, I'm gonna go to such and such town and we're gonna have business, we're gonna prosper, everything's gonna be great. And then James says this, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. So this is the beginning of, of how you should to think about anything that you have or whatever you're thinking about for the future, you consecrate not just your right now, present, people, place, things that you're doing, but you also look to the future and say, if the Lord wills, then I will be able to do something. If the Lord wills, then we will live. That's the first thing. Like, will I have life and breath tomorrow? I don't know. But only if the Lord wills, will that happen? And then beyond that, can I make plans beyond that? Well, as it is, um, you can say, if the Lord wills, we'll then live and do this or that. Hopefully, if, if it's God's will. And then he says, as it is, you boast in arrogance. So the idea that you make plans without ever thinking of God, without ever asking, is this something that um, would accord with, like, a priestly role here? Like, is my, am I reflecting my Christian service by doing this or that, or by making this or that plan? Or am I just accruing more and more things for myself? He says, so um, all such boasting is evil. All such boasting is evil. That's a... That's, um, Sort of a, a very black and white statement. Like, if you think that you can go and make plans without God, you will do those things, but that kind of idea eliminates God from the equation and it's evil. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you've probably heard this before, but let me just help parse it out for a second. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, okay? In some of your ways, think about Him occasionally and make your plans and they will be straight. That's the revised American version. Okay? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding, on your plans, on what you want to do, what you think is important, in all of your ways. I'm so convinced that we think, yes, in some of my ways, I've acknowledged God somewhere down in my heart, and He will make my... Like, you you slap the proverbial God sticker on your plans, and think that the planning commission is going to just make your path straight because you've acknowledged him in some way. It doesn't say that. It says on the forefront, you acknowledge God with all of your heart and you you turn everything over to him and he will make sure that the path is straight. And your straight and his straight may not be the same. Your understanding of straight is not the same as God's understanding of straight. If the Lord wills, I'll return to the place I dearly want to come. And God does that. Not just, you know, trying to make you miserable. But when you turn things over to God, when you consecrate yourself and your future to him, he will use it for the benefit of others, which is what we always see as the fruit of Paul's doing. He's encouraging people. He's planting churches. He's, he's just growing people in the Lord. He's spreading the gospel. Whatever he can do. God, have you given me this? Is it for your, for your glory. How can I advance the kingdom with this thing that I have? We are transactional with our stuff right now as especially with the future. We think... I will promise God to do exactly what he wants me to do in the future, so long as he gives me what I need right now, or what I think I need right now. Am I, hitting, am I hitting anybody's particular flavor today? Because I think this is us, okay? We say, God, I need this right now, but if you give it to me, then in the future, for sure, I will do exactly what you want me to do. This is the bargain with God, okay? Okay? This is the bargain with God. This is, I have a plan and I need to execute it. I need you to slap your sticker on there so that you've approved my plans. I'll give nothing. You give to me. I'll be happy. And then when we get to the future, we'll readdress the situation. But here's the problem. Your standard's going to move. And then when you get in that situation, you're just going to need God to give a little bit more. Do you know what will not be the scene that plays out at the end of time? Like Jesus, you know, in heaven, he says, hey, how's it go? Like, you know, it was, uh, it was good. I mean, it was touch and go. You didn't give me very much, I, but through my striving and working, I made up the gap, right? I worked so hard and, 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 and I, you know, there was times of, of, of lack and I wasn't sure I was going to make it, but because of my efforts, you know, I just, I had just enough. I mean, like I was happy occasionally. There's times where I wasn't very happy, but there was times where I made up the difference, right? And like in every parable that Jesus tells about stewardship of God's stuff, which is exactly what you have, his life, his breath, his time, his benefits, his blessings. Every parable about stewardship has to do with the, the, the mentality of the steward who says, this is for me, versus the, the mentality of the steward that says, this, this is for somebody else. This is for honoring the king. This is for honoring the manager. This is for honoring the landowner. And so your, your parroting back to God, you didn't give me enough, is not going to fly. Like, Jesus, you did some, but I made up the rest. I didn't have enough, so I, tr- I tried harder. I kept every single thing you gave me. Yeah, that was good, but I needed more. Do you see the, the fundamental problem? You're saying, Jesus, even what you gave me wasn't good enough. Even, I can't lay anything down because I still need more in my pocket. I still need, okay, am I, I hope I'm not hammering that down too hard, but I, I wanted to hammer it down. So we do not indebt God by giving anything but we are supposed to consecrate our future to him and say, God, I give you now and I give you later. And by doing that, he often brings about our own, our own benefit, our own help. <laughs> so we consecrate our, our future planning by committing our present to God. Obedience today, willfully laying aside your plans, what you want, is often what lays the, your preservation for tomorrow. We often don't know what our sacrifice will, will bring about. And, and that's because that little exercise I had you do at the beginning, it's not possible. Like you can't look at the price tag of something and know if I forego this, that somebody else will get into the kingdom. And could you, could you put a price on that anyway? But like if I forego this, if I gave this thing up, if I was willing to sacrifice, I laid this down. Could this benefit somebody else? And the answer is absolutely yes. God will always do way more with what you have than you can do with what you have. Okay, let me give you, if you don't believe me, I'll give you two prime examples. When, uh, when Jesus is going to feed the 5,000, first he, he asked the disciples, how are you going to feed the 5,000? <laughs> and they're like, I don't know, we don't have any food. Like, you guys go ahead and do it. And so they're kind of looking in their own resources and what they have. And so he's like, yeah, just go ahead and just do it. All we have is five, you know, five loaves and, and two fish. What are we going to do? And so when, when, when they finally realize that Jesus in this little meager portion in the hands of Jesus is the only way that this thing is going to happen, they turn over what they have to God and he makes it abundant, okay? And he, he gives all that they have and even more so that they collect extra at the end. So what they had... Not enough. Not even close. Whatever you bring to the table, they could have had lunch and shared maybe between the 12 and given the nice little boy a thank you, okay? So in their hands, nothing, okay? But in the hands of God, in the hands of Jesus, everything beyond abundant, right? That one maybe is not compelling. Okay, how about Moses? (laughs) Moses uh, grows up in the house of Pharaoh. He's favored. uh, Has all the wisdom of Egypt. um, Gets you know, palatial benefits. I mean, he's just like, for 40 years, he lived a good life. And it says, for 40 years, he lived in exile, in the desert. He was a, a shepherd. He lived in the wilderness. I mean, there's no renown, no glory, no, no real hope of doing anything great with his life, okay? But after 40 years, it says, you know, God God appears to him in this bush, right? And he announces himself, and he goes through this dialogue about, who God is and, and, and what God's called him to do. And surely Moses knows, he definitely knows in and of himself, I can't do this thing. Because he's asking questions like, How will I do this? Who should I say sent me? Okay? So get the sense of the progression. And then God asks Moses a question What's in your hand? Nothing. Moses has nothing except for this little rod that he uses to shepherd right? To, to be in the wilderness. It's like a protection stick. And God has him throw it down and he uses, and it turns into a snake and then he tells him to pick it up and he picks it up, right? And so God uses this thing that's in Moses' hand to, to go and to, as the, the rod of power through which God wielded many miracles, including splitting the Red Sea, as this rod, which in the hands of Moses was just a stupid stick, right? But in the hands of God, it means something way bigger, way more important. God will always do more with what you have than what you can do with what you have but only if you open-handedly will give it to him. He will not snatch it from your hands. But you, you might lose it along the way and be very bitter about it, but that just tells you something about your heart in that. God redeems your living, because he also redeems your time. The, the time that Moses spent in the wilderness was important. He redeems that. He, he uses that for, for Moses' good and for his leadership abilities. He redeems his troubles. The troubles that Moses had, are, are useful. He uses those. He, he uses those to, to help uh, lead the people. He, he he understands what humility is. He, he uh, grasps um, what God has done in his life to bring him about to this place. And he uses the tools that he's given us, but they're always for his purpose. In your hand, um, it will never be as good as it will be when you trust God with it. And so the principle here is not to get you to live like a life of destitution and poverty. That's not the point. The point is your, your perspective on what it means to be a priest and then understanding that laying down your life as a sacrifice for the benefit of others is what we're all called to do. And applying that across any place that you can so that we are able to fulfill what God has called us to be so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. Amen.